You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. Hey, welcome back to another episode. Glad that you could join me. You know, a couple of months ago, I was reading a book called White Knuckle Love. It was sent to me. It was a memoir. I'm reading it and I'm like, holy smokes, like I could just totally resonate with what the author was saying throughout their story. And somewhere early on in the book, April Stace, the author, mentions that she had lived in Maryland for a minute. And I was like, huh, Maryland. Okay, let's keep reading. And then she mentioned a few people that I knew. And I was like, wait a minute. I met April like 17 years ago. This is so bizarre. We have such a small world. And so I ended up emailing her and having a conversation with her and thought I should bring her up on the podcast. So April, welcome. Thanks. So good to be here. It is great to see you. You know, it's it's such a small world because I was very involved with Cedar Ridge Community Church. That was like one and a half miles away from my church in Burtonsville, Maryland at that one point. Um, and we know several of the, of the same people. So as I was reading your story, I felt like I knew you much better than I do know you. I kind of feel like we're besties now. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just start from the beginning. I mean, you had this like dream job. You have your PhD done. You're like, you know, moving to New York City. Like what pastor doesn't want to move to New York City and save all the heathens in, in New York, you know, and, and uh, here you are, you got your dream church. And but it sounds like things very quickly kind of, you kind of discovered this was not the job that you thought it was going to be. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I actually never wanted to move to New York. I was just in a position where like, you know, I had my PhD. I was really lucky to get a one-year sabbatical replacement position after my PhD was over. And, you know, the academic job market, you know, is just as bad as finding a book agent. I mean, it's really, (laughs) really hard, you know? And I had this, I have a kid, like he was really young at the time. And my then husband was working a lot. And it was just this job offer from Riverside literally landed in my lap. You know, Mm -hmm. they contacted me and said, would you apply? I was kind of like, well, I never thought I would go back to church work. And I certainly never imagined myself in a church like Riverside, which is a Gothic cathedral, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, so established and has a, I mean, it has a very cool background. Like Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King spoke there, you know, all kinds of social justice stuff. It was really like a move, I want to say out of kind of desperation, but it also was probably the first time that I was like, wow, I have a real job, like a job (laughs) with a salary that I could actually like save for my kids college. And, you know, it was, I was kind of half excited, I think, because everyone else was so excited for me, like our common Mm -hmm. friend, Brian, you know, just talking about what a good move this was for me and like how this could me do more, more of my work and stuff like that. But it became just really apparent. I mean, I was just miserable from the first day. Mm. And, I, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many reasons behind that. But I think the reasons that are important to the book and to my story is just that that's not my call mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, to be in a big established church like that. And, yeah. You know, so how, how long were you there for? Because like, I'm trying to figure out from the beginning of starting there to your last day, how long did it last? Less than a year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's not in the book for a reason. I have a lot of shame about that. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. Well, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, when I was reading your book, there was a lot of similarities. And I have this saying that's really rude. And it's and I've always thought it's true until I started doing it. And that is, you've heard that saying, those who can't teach. You heard that saying? 
I go further. I go, those who can't teach, those who can't teach chaplain hospitals. <laughs> it's like, you know, chaplaincy is like not for me. When I left Canada, I had probably well over a thousand books in my library and most of them were used for my doctorate. And I was like, you know what? I don't need any of this stuff. I left all my books behind. I came back. And, and what's so funny is like out of all my books, they were like marketing, business, like, you know, nonprofit leadership. And there was like one sliver, like literally maybe like 10 books on counseling. And that's mm-hmm. it. That shows you how interested I was in that topic. And after I lost my job, I started taking CPE units and started taking courses, started being a chaplain. And now, you know, I'm a chaplain and I'm a bereavement um, counselor. And I'm like, holy smokes, this is exactly what I needed to do. But I, it took me forever to figure that out. So as I was reading your book and kind of seeing your journey, kind of going, well, I really don't got anything to do, but I got to like make ends meet. And I guess I'll do a chaplain gig and uh, let me find something else. You know, I really related you know, to your story. You write so exceptional, so beautiful. You're so compelling. Tell me about your chaplain experience. Like, you know, you, you did it and it sounded like partly you did it for the money, partly because you needed a, a gig. What did you learn from that? And how did you grow in that in that area? Oh, it's really hard to even, you know, an answer to a question because it was life changing for me. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I started my first unit of CPE literally because, you know, it had been maybe a month or two since Riverside ended. And I was kind of like, I was like, what, what am I going to do? You know, and, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I was applying for everything I could find. I was applying for teaching jobs. I mean, just like every single thing I could find, I was applying for because yeah. I, oh my God, I was living in New York City. Like, <laughs> an income, you know? Yeah. And, and every like website I saw that was like, you know, kind of what to do when you're between jobs. One of the things that always said was do some professional development. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just got my freaking PhD, man. Like, yeah. I don't, I, what am I going to professionally develop? And then yeah. it, it dawned on me that I'd never done CPE. And mm. actually, like I had, I had really wanted to, like when I started seminary, I saw myself as a chaplain, like that kind mm. of one-on-one work. But then I kind of got into like the academics and, you know, it just other yeah. things and it took its place. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'll just apply. And, you know, if I don't have a job by then, honestly, I, it was very pragmatic. I was like, at least it'll help me like grow a network here that maybe will lead to a job. Eventually, right? And then I learned about the residencies and you could apply for a residency, be paid for a year. I mean, they pay you $30,000 in Manhattan. Which I was going to say, it, they claim they pay you, but yeah. it's really not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe 30,000 is fine in like Lancaster or whatever, but oh right. my God, Manhattan, I mean, it's yeah. a show. You know, I think I went in really feeling like I've been a pastor for a while. I had trained as a crisis counselor in college. Mm -hmm. I really kind of felt like I'm good at this already. (laughs) Like I'm going to be in here with a bunch of seminarians and like, I know what I'm doing. Like I can work a hospital room, you know, whatever. But that first unit was so transformative for me. And I think it was more than anything else. It was the truth telling, Mm. you know, like where you're sitting with other people yeah. We're also caring for the ill, caring for people in the hospital. And yeah, I had an, uh, my supervisor is this wonderful, very direct Israeli immigrant named Yael. And she she was kind of like an old school CPE person for this, for anyone that's CPE, like this kind of like a baptism by fire kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the first day she had us go around and tell each other what our first impressions were of each other. Mm. And on the one hand, it's like, so who cares? On the other hand, like that takes such yeah. 
guts, you know, and here to get that kind of feedback Mm -hmm. on how I was coming across and presenting. I can't even remember the last time I got that. And it just grew from there. Right. Just this like bare knuckle, like just completely no fear kind of feedback to each other Mm -hmm. to the point where at the end, I remember at the end of the unit, like when we were evaluating each other, this one person said to me something like, well, I think sometimes like you can intimidate other people. Mm. And at that point I had done so much work. I was like, I can hear that. And I also kind of don't care because mm. I, am who I am. And if I intimidate you, that's on you. Right. And I mean, I had always carried such shame about my gift set because I knew that I could intimidate people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just that kind of real brave feedback. I think that wow. was so life-changing about it. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why I avoided going into CPE for years is because I knew they were going to like drum up your past and drum up your, you know, like all your like junk. And I was like, I see a therapist. I don't need to do this in a group setting, you know? So, so all of a sudden, like you're in CPE, you're doing the self-discovery and you're now coming out publicly as gay. To me, I'm like, I'm just frightened for you because I'm like, oh no, this is going to like unpack so much of the psychosocial work that you have to do. So, so how did that impact your journey? And what did that, what did you learn about yourself as far as being gay during that period? Well, yeah, my coming out is a really weird thing because I actually came out in college. So back when I was 18 or 19 Mm -hmm. and then ended up through a variety of, okay, that's something I unpacked in CBE. Like why the heck was I gay and married a man when I was 20? Right. So that was definitely something that I had to work on and understand and continue to work on. It was all, I think just, it was a summer of like truth telling. Mm-hmm. You know, it was me learning how to tell the truth about myself in terms of my sexuality and to live it out that way. It was a time of truth telling to myself. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that I found really interesting is what you say in your book that on your very first date with your husband, you told him you were gay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you had already kind of acknowledge that side of your life at some point and then maybe repressed it for, you know, for whatever reason. So there was a part of you that already knew inside um, who you really were. Talk to me about just kind of the experience of finally acknowledging and accepting yourself as a gay person. You know, was there shame involved with it or was there just more self-discovery? Well, the first time in college, I would say there was like no shame. My parents were not like all that accepting or like, but they definitely were not rejecting. But honestly, I do think like not having their support, I think probably, and again, they were not unsupportive, but not having like their active support. I think it really kind of undermined my confidence. Mm -hmm. And my mother in particular always seemed to like, not quite believe me that I was actually gay. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that it's kind of crazy making and you start to believe it yourself. And then I met you know, my then husband, Nuke, who's actually downstairs right now doing a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him I said hi, because I what, what my listener doesn't know is that as I was reading April's book, I was like, she mentions her husband. I'm like, I know Nuke. And so we, <laughs> we both have this like one degree of separation, which is so hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I kind of lost my confidence. And then I met Nuke, who's an all around great guy. And, you know, our traumas just kind of intersected in ways that you can never understand when you're 18 and 21. Mm-hmm. I felt very alone. I think he felt kind of alone. And we really just connected in in a really important way, I think. I didn't have any other way to understand that besides this is a a relationship. But yeah, on that first date, I told him I was gay. And then he told me that he was a Christian. So it was like... (laughs) And then when we got married, like this was all very much understood, right? I, I understood it as like 
it was a worthy sacrifice Uh of myself, right? Like for this person, for this relationship, for all the different ways that we, you know, we made music together a lot, things like Uh all the different things we were doing that me sacrificing this part of myself seemed worthwhile. And I, you Uh know, all these Christian models for that, right? Like all of the the celibacy of monks and priests Uh and nuns, you know, like, and I really just, that's kind of how I, held it was like, well, this is my version of celibacy. Like it's, it's me redirecting this energy for greater good. And as I got older and older, I got to know some lesbian neighbors, but then I got to know like parents, like lesbian parents. And then I started working for the Episcopal church where I got to know a bunch of lesbian priests. Mm -hmm. And, and then I got hired at Riverside where you're totally fine to be a gay minister, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, you're kind of celebrated. And I had this moment of just like, what have I done to my life? And actually, I saw a young friend, again, someone you would know, I don't want to say their name, but on Facebook, who was talking about coming out. And I was like, she's like 15 years younger than me. <laughs> like, oh yeah. God. you know, like, did I? Oh, my God. And so and like, it's kind of like once you cross that threshold, it's really hard to come back. Just and when you start to see, like, I could do all the things I'm doing, and also, like, not always feel at war with myself about who I am, you know, about. So, could you have, let me, I'm, I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to save your marriage now, like 10 years later, but could you have, like, thought about the idea of being like in a polyamorous relationship? Like, because from, from everything that you write in the book, you speak so highly of your husband, your ex husband, and you guys are such good friends. In fact, he's downstairs right now as we're talking. Could you have kind of, because I, I know several couples that, that are, you know, on the spectrum, right? So they're, they're gay, but they're married to somebody and they have a deep love for that person and they, they make it work, but they also have an understanding that they can also have other relationships outside. Would that have worked for you? Or did you feel like that would not have been being a, totally honest to who you actually are? I think it could have worked. And I, you know, I think sometimes... I look back and I'm like, we could have done this in a much more gentle way because, you know, our separation and divorce. I think the thing is that it it was festering for too long. And and then it's like when you get to a point, if you've let it go too long, it's kind of like it has to happen now or I'm going to die. And whereas if we had actually maybe like thought about it more seriously or addressed it earlier, I think we could have come up with kind of a creative solution. My son absolutely would have been grateful for that. And, but just, you know, it's just the way the cards fell. It was kind of, that's what had to happen at the time. Yeah. And you wouldn't have been able to have met Lou and fall in love with Lou, who, right. who is, you know, the love of your life. So I do want to talk about that aspect of the relationship. But before I do, I do want to kind of come back to the idea of you being gay and Christian, kind of have you speak to so many people who are in the same exact situation. So, you know, as an ally, you know that I'm very heavily involved with a uh, LGBTQIA plus organization. No matter what I say to people, it is never the same coming from somebody who has first world experience, right, from that. And one of the things that I often do is talk and counsel with people who are in the closet, who are trying to figure out whether it's worth coming out to the parents or not. Recently, speaking to a lot of parents who have their kids coming out to them, which is such an interesting thing now because it's so, so welcome. And it's so, it's just such a different world than it was even 12 years ago. You know, how parents are reacting and how they want to be supportive and loving at the same time. So, so what do you say to a person who's like, I still feel like I'm going to go to hell because I'm gay? 
I'm not sure this answers your question, but you know, one of the things I talk about in the book a couple of times in, in different ways is just how, you know, that there's no such thing as like a choice without a loss. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me very much the moment of kind of crisis was like, you know, I didn't grow up with that kind of theology that you're going to go to hell if you're, if you're gay or anything like, like that wasn't really part of my story, but I can kind of relate to it in terms of my role as a mother and my mm-hmm. role, you know, as a wife in that, I had grown up very much with like divorce is wrong. <laughs> children, you do not do it. And even as much as I wouldn't condemn anyone else for getting a divorce, like I was just never going to do it because it would hurt my kid too much. And but really getting to a point of like my life is at stake here. Like I could either be like a not ideal mom or I can be a dead mom. And I think my son would prefer a not ideal mom. And I think there's something to that, getting to that point with God as well as kind of being, you know, like I could, I mean, I hate to say, but it's almost like if you let it go long enough, you can get to a point where it's like, you kind of feel you're going to go to hell either way. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't come out, you're going to be lying your whole life. You're going to be like probably acting out in all kinds of ways that you, you don't know because you're going to have this frustration inside and you're going to be taking it out in ways you don't understand. And then also the risk of suicide for people that don't come out is, is very high. And, you know, then you think, well, okay, so God, should I come out or should, you know, like, it's kind of like, it feels like a huge risk. It really does. And I'm so sympathetic to that. You know, my partner Lou actually has a great story about this because they did grow up very conservative and very evangelical they kind of had a very spiritual moment where they realized they were gay. And then they were at Biola, which is a Christian college. In <laughs> so they instantly got themselves in counseling thinking like, I have to, there's something wrong with me and I have to fix it so that I can be a good person. And, but through that counseling, through that therapy, they got to a point where they were like, I'm just going to have to trust God with this. And, you know, I've trusted God my whole life and God, I'm going to try and experiment. I'm going to try to just be okay with my sexuality. And I'm going to trust that if this isn't what you want me to do, you're going to tell me. Mm-hmm. And so they did. And mm-hmm. so I, I often think like, that's such a profound story of trust, isn't yeah. it? Like yeah. the, I mean, it's really, and my, you know, Lou isn't even a Christian anymore, but mm-hmm. I just look back at that spiritual moment. It's like, gosh, that's so profound. Like such well, a rare- it is. And to come to the very end, and say, yes, this is the truth, and still believe that that is God bringing you to that truth. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, that is such a huge piece to, to that. That's really profound. Hey guys, Kumar here, conciergeminister.com. If you're someone who is questioning your identity, whether you're straight or gay or, or bi or trans, or whether you don't even have a label for who you are, you're just trying to figure things out and you have a lot of questions, you're unclear whether or not you should even come out to your family. You're unclear whether or not God loves you because of who you are or who you think you are. You got to talk to me. You got to call me. You have to send me an email because I want to listen to you and I want to let you know that I'm the chaplain for Kinship International, an organization, worldwide organization that supports and reminds people of God's great love for them, despite who you are, who you think you are, or who you may be. I want you to know that God loves you no matter what, and I can help you think through some of these issues. Also, if you're an ally or a parent who has questions and you need someone to process with, don't hesitate to contact me, concierge at gmail.com. I want to remind you of God's great love.
So I want to ask you a question I'm embarrassed to ask you. I may not even put it on the podcast because I don't want to come across as like this stupid, ignorant, you know, person about LGBTQ issues, but I figure I need to ask you this. And, <laughs> okay. and you know, I'll take the wrath if I end up podcasting this. But in your book, you say that, you know, Lou by design, you know, was a woman and you met them as a lesbian, but then they saw themselves as a man and they were talking about top surgery. I don't even know what happens. I'm not sure that if they ended up getting top surgery or not in the book, but there's discussion about that. And, you know, and then I, you know, I start like, totally like finding you on the internet. I'm doing my own sleuth research and pictures of you and Lou. And I'm like, okay, Lou's like a dude. Lou is like, you know, Lou's like dressed, acting, looking like a dude. Okay. And so then I'm like, why does a lesbian want to marry a dude? Because she just divorced a dude. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm like, I'm like, and, and I don't say this with, anger or meanness or, or, or judgment. It's more of, I need to understand that train of thought. Cause I think a lot of people are curious about that as well, because yeah. like I've been to lesbian bars and like 60% of them are like dressed in wife beaters and jeans and they're like sideburns and they look like dudes. Right. And I'm like, what is going on? Why are lesbians wanting to date guys who are dudes, but they still want to be lesbians. So is that really like an insensitive question to ask you? <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to be able to like clear it up, but okay. I will say, first of all, Lou does not identify as a man. Lou identifies as non-binary. So, okay. okay. Right? So that's when we think about like gender and transgender, like there's mm-hmm. yeah. Lou is assigned female at birth and then, but, but has always kind of not felt right as a woman. And mm-hmm. so, Actually, when I they had, they identified as non-binary before I met them, they started using they them pronouns within the first week or two that we were together. Okay, and so Lou doesn't even identify as a lesbian because a lesbian is by definition is right a woman who right like the women right. So right. Lou identifies as queer because Lou identifies as non-binary attracted to women. Well, that just explains it all right there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really interesting. I mean, and I, you know, this has been like a point of learning for me too. I mean, for one thing, thinking about Lewis compared to Nuke, like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nuke and I were driving back to Maryland for a funeral a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And somewhere we were having this conversation and kind of going back and forth. And he was dating somebody, and I was dating Lou. And we were talking about that in our marriage. And I, and I ended up saying like, oh, he said something like, so what's wrong with, I think it's the same thing. He's like, well, yeah. you know, dating this person who's like so masculine, like, why couldn't you just stay with me? And I was like, you're not butch enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So yeah, I'm not totally sure. It's Cause it's, you know, I was always really attracted to very femme women. Like we call it mm-hmm. gender presentation or gender expression. Mm-hmm. So I moved to New York and started living into my identity. And then I really, I don't know. It was, you know, when I met Lou, I was attracted to, like I met them online and I met, you know, their personality. And I was like, I need to know this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are times that I struggle with it, yeah. but, but Lou's not a dude. Lou is very much like a both and a neither. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, not, I mean, yeah, definitely not a man though. Right. Non-binary. I think as soon as you said that that clicked and I was yeah. like, okay, we have to be cognizant of the idea that there are not two genders. Right. And so and even for someone like me, you know, who's who's trying really to understand and and really be open to that idea. 
I still have that blind spot where I'm like, no, there's only two genders. So why are you choosing one? Right. Instead mm-hmm. of realizing that there's such a spectrum of where we are. Right. So, yeah. so yeah. thank you for explaining that. I want to go back to the book about your experience in chaplaincy and in, in New York, because it's such a beautiful arc as far as just how you started and then kind of towards the end, as far as you finding your role as a chaplain and a healer and a mediator. Tell me what, how death in particular has changed you just being with dying people and their families. How has that changed you as a person? It taught me how to live. Mm. It definitely taught me how to live. You You get to see so many people at the end of their lives and in so many different ways, you know, as you know, like mm-hmm. everybody has a different way of dying. And from, you know, people who have lived on the streets for God knows how long, dying alone and scared to, you know, the family person who's surrounded by 20 kids and grandkids and cousins and then everything in between. Right? And then I think maybe even more than that, the people who are like, okay, I'm going to die. And who are, you know, versus people who are like just trying to eke out every last second, mm-hmm. even if it's like the crappiest second of their life. Mm-hmm. Right. And it really just drove home to me, like, not the first one to say this, but you die well if you live well. Mm-hmm. And and it really just forced questions for me about what does it mean to live well? Like when how can I be the kind of person who on her deathbed is like, I had a good run, mm-hmm. you know? Instead of like, I have so much left that I, I never, I never wrote my book or I know, you know, I never did this or, you know, and you know, a lot of people on their deathbed, particularly in our culture, there's a lot of like, I didn't spend enough time with my kids regrets. And I, you know, I should have just, my job didn't matter. That was not my issue. I spent plenty of time with my son and I still do. And I'm really glad about that. And I didn't need chaplaincy to, to instill that in me. But what I did need was this, like, it became really clear to me. Like, if I don't write this book, if I don't take seriously my creative writing, I'm going to die feeling like I never lived. Mm. So yeah, that's, I think that's the biggest way being around death changed my life. And what did you learn about yourself writing this book? I mean, was there kind of, we just assume you're writing a memoir and you're kind of retelling a story, but as you're reliving it, what are you learning about yourself? Oh my God, it was the most painful book I've ever, I mean, it was so hard to write, mm. especially because I, you know, I was an academic writer prior to that. Yeah. We're like, you lay out all the chapters ahead of time and you have your arguments and like, you know where you're going. It's like, it's, it's painstaking and it's difficult, but it's not like, doesn't make you churn inside. Right. Mm -hmm. This book was how I made meaning out of a completely horrible time in my life. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like wanton destruction at my own hands, you know? And I mean, just really trying to, yeah, it was just, I mean, I wouldn't even call it coming to peace with it. I think the hardest part was giving it an arc mm-hmm. because especially when I, you know, when I wrote it, I didn't, there was no meaning in it for me yet. It was mm-hmm. like, this just all sucked. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as a reader, you do feel that. I mean, I do feel your pain and I do feel the depravity that you experiencing. And, and it's almost as if there's like a, you're in a pit and you can't dig your way out. Right. But that I think is part of the vulnerability that you help people realize because so many of us can see ourselves in your story, you know, different aspects of your, of your story. So let's fast forward to your life today. Like, where are you today? What are you doing? I know you're not chaplaining, you know, uh, and making $30,000 a year any, a- anymore. So what's changed since we've read the book? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot. And Lou and I got married a couple of years ago 
we just moved a couple of weeks ago to the Finger Lakes region in a big old farmhouse that has literally everything wrong with it. It could have wrong. <laughs> um, but it's on a bunch of land. It's just beautiful. I have, for the past couple of years, I've been working full-time at a Presbyterian church mm-hmm. as a minister and almost full-time at the General Theological Seminary in New York City. So with the move up here, I'm leaving the church job and I'm actually staying on and moving to full-time at the seminary because they're going to be pursuing like a hybrid model. Oh, nice. And then I, you know, but I really feel like my chaplains, for one thing, I teach pastoral care. So even though my PhD isn't in pastoral care, you know, learned over the course of the residency that I've had yeah. some significant gifts in that area. and can definitely teach it. So I do that. I also started my own coaching practice, which I think really, I think of it as like a, a combination between like a professor and a chaplain and mm-hmm. a director, like all kind of all the things I love to do mm-hmm. put into one. So I started coaching people. So That's really great. Yeah, it is That's, really great. Yeah, It's great to be stable because man, in that book, I was not yeah. one of the most hard things about that year was just how broke I was like all the time. Just mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're at this like place in your life. You're like, why am I this old? And I'm, and I'm sleeping on my ex's couch. No. Right. And so when you look at like how far you've come, it's really kind of a, a, an amazing story. I mean, do you see God in, in all of that? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I just feel very grateful. Mm-hmm. I don't even know that I can say like, well, God brought me here, did this or that. Like it's, I just feel very, very grateful that mm-hmm. I have the gifts that I have that, you know, which as much as they're not marketable in our society are able to, you know, I'm a writer and a musician and a pastor, like mm-hmm. never make a zillion dollars, but I had enough skills to, to make my way through. And just the, I, I'm just having a story come up in my mind right now. That's not in the book, but it was when I was, you know, I would go right from the hospital to pick up Luke at school on the train, take him. And then we'd have to take the train farther uptown. And it was always oh, just, I mean, it was just horrendous. It was every day was just so noisy and hard. And then I'd have to walk even further uptown if I needed to go get groceries. And this particular night, we had to go get some groceries to come home. And I had a $20 bill in my pocket. And so I was like, okay, we're going to go get this, 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 and this. And so as we went through the grocery, you know, I even got Luke something special that like he wanted. And I was adding it all in my head. And I get to the cash register and I can't find the $20 bill. And I don't have a credit card. And I don't have anything in my bank account. And I was just like, I started to panic. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and cause this, this is New York. Like people do not like to wait. Right. I was just like <laughs> waiting for people to like yell at me. And I was just like, what am I going to do? You know, I felt at that moment, just so like I've been beaten, mm-hmm. you know, and, and at that, this guy next to me who was bagging his groceries was like, here, gave me $20. And I was, really? like, I was like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just take it. I was like, I mean, if for him, that was probably nothing. As someone now who's like more financially stable, I, you know, I would do the same thing and I know it wouldn't break my bank or whatever. But at the time it was just like, oh my God, you know, like it was such a relief. And so just little things like that. I'm just so grateful for it. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. What an incredible story. There are decent people in this world. Yeah. Mm. April, I love the book. It's it's such a fantastic read. I couldn't put it down. I just kept reading and reading and reading and reading. And I really hope that, you know, I, I love what you say, because, you know, the book is called White Knuckle Love, but then there's a subtitle and you don't just end with a memoir. It's called A Memoir of Holding. And I think that's such a beautiful, beautiful encapsulation of your 
of your story, you know, mm-hmm. to just keep holding on to whatever you can hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And especially you probably knows, but the end of the book, I say a little bit about that in the pandemic we've just been through. Yes. Right. Which is that felt to me a very natural ending to the book. And then it was like, Oh, all these skills that I developed of just holding, mm-hmm. waiting, staying put, right. Like not letting go of myself, of other people, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. like this is the skill set to get through a pandemic. That's right. And we've all been doing that now for the past year or so just holding. It's hard work. It is hard work. And thank you so much for teaching us about this. And thank you for joining me on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Concierge Minister podcast. If you want to learn more about growing in your faith or looking for an online faith community for support while you're on your journey, please visit conciergeminister.com or send us an email at concierge at gmail.com. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. If you find this podcast helpful, please tell your friends about us. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go and live your best life.